We're going to be looking this morning at two passages, one briefly, one in some more depth, Isaiah 12 and Psalm 96. For those of you who may be newer to Christ church, this is what a topical sermon looks like. We've been these in this uh, last week, this week, and next two weeks to come in a in a topical series on outreach called Ambassadors for Christ. But a topical series is not me standing up and telling you what I think about something. It's not me standing up and telling you what a bunch of men think about something. It's turning to a text and telling you what God said about something. And so even as we are not going consecutively through a book like we have been through the book of Romans and before that through the book of 1 Samuel, we are in the text of God's Word because it is God's Word that is authoritative. It is God's Word that is life-giving. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Isaiah chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord. For he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And then if you would turn to your left in your Bibles, back to the book of Psalms. We'll now take a look at Psalm 96. O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. 
Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open up your word. We ask, O oh Father, that you would open it up by the power of your Holy Spirit, that in it we might see the glories of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to you, O oh Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to find you in your word. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. This is the second in our series on being ambassadors for Christ. And last week, we looked at our privilege and our obligation to proclaim the good news of the gospel. You may recall that we said last week, it starts with our problem. That is, our sin and our separation from God. And then the message moves on to the provision that God has given that he has given Christ for sinners. But the provision from our Lord is not just that he gives Christ for sinners. No, he also provides a ministry of reconciliation through his people to tell others of Christ. And so now this week and for the next two weeks to come, we're going to look at some of the practical ways that we can carry out this ministry of reconciliation. What do we speak of before the world? We need first to tell others who God is. Because knowing who God is, is essential to understanding our problem. The bigger that God is seen to be, the more we know we need Him, and the more we realize that He answers our need. Then next week we will see that we need to share Jesus, who He is, and what He has done. That our message is not about how we can live better lives or how we can deal with our faults. No, instead it is how we can be transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And then finally, two weeks from now, we will see that we need to live lives that show the change that Jesus has made in us. And that will give us both opportunities and credibility when we speak to others. But this week we begin with God. Psalm 96 is a missionary psalm. It is calling all the people of the whole world to worship the Lord, the one true God. And so Psalm 96 takes us through three things that we can and must declare about God. First, we must declare the Lord's great works. We declare to a watching world what God has done. Then second, we must declare the Lord's great nature, who God is. It's not just what God has done, but it is who God is that we declare. And then thirdly and finally, we must declare the Lord's great return, that the Lord is coming back. He is returning as judge to set all things right and to restore all things. The Lord's great works, the Lord's great nature, and the Lord's great return. Well, you see, you may have noticed that I started this morning with a text from Isaiah chapter 12. Why do I do that? It's because Isaiah 12, specifically verse 4, sounds the same theme in brief 
that Psalm 96 does. But Isaiah 12 also reminds us where this declaration that we make to the world comes from. It comes from the salvation that we have received from God. Verse 3 of Isaiah 12 is explicit. You draw water from the wells of salvation. Now, in this context, in the days of Isaiah, water was something that you not only could not live without, but you had to gather each and every day. It was something that you had to be focused on every single day of your life to live. And what Isaiah is telling us is the salvation that we have received from God is like water to us. We must draw from the salvation and the knowledge of our salvation that has come to us in order to declare to a world who God is and what He has done. We speak in a fashion from our experience. We do not come with just our experience, but our experience motivates us to tell others about the Lord our God. And our salvation, Isaiah said, makes us thankful. We see this in verse 1. It makes us unafraid because we trust God in verse 2. And it causes us to proclaim the Lord's name and His deeds. And to tell others that the Lord is glorious and great. In verses 4 through 6. Isaiah 12 is the summary, the background then of what Psalm 96 gives to us in detail. Let's begin then to look at Psalm 96. The first thing that Psalm 96 tells us is that we are to declare the great works that the Lord has done. Now, I realize that you cannot separate what God has done from who He is. And that's because God is the only one who is perfect in all of His actions. Only God always accomplishes His will. Now, we, for example, may have intentions to do something. And there are times when we intend to do something and we are unable to complete it. Or perhaps we might undertake a task and we would do it wrong. Not so with God. So there is indeed an overlap between God's nature and His works, but let's start by focusing on God's works. It is also important that we see the necessity of us declaring God's works. We see this in verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3 are filled with imperative verbs, that is, commanding verbs. They're in a commanding mood. They are telling us what we must do. They are not suggestions. There are six of them. Sing, which we see three times. Bless, tell, and declare. And these commands begin with a triple command to sing. And so the emphasis cannot be missed. The psalmist tells us to sing to the Lord, to sing to the Lord, to sing to the Lord and bless His name. That's what the psalmist wants us to do. But what is this that he asks us to do? We are to sing a new song, the psalmist tells us in verse 1. And when we hear that, our first thought might be to put the emphasis on ourselves. We might think this is a new song that we have to come up with to praise God. It's something we contribute for God. Let's bless God with this new song we've created. 
But the idea of a new song in the Bible actually doesn't have reference to our creation. It references some new thing that God is doing or has done. And we respond to this new thing that God has done with a song of praise. So, for example, this phrase, sing a new song, occurs nine times in the scriptures. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in each instance, it's in the context of the praise and worship of God. It occurs in the Psalms, in the prophet Isaiah, and in the book of Revelation. In each instance, it is declaring the salvation that God has brought to his people. It is new in that what God has done has changed everything. It is also new in that it describes that salvation is now being poured out, as the psalmist says, to all the earth. Perhaps the best example of this is in the book of Revelation, chapter 5. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You see there, this describes the scene of the worship of the saints around the throne of God. And this new song that they sing is the song celebrating the redemption that Jesus Christ has purchased. But you also see it's more than that. It's not just about how Jesus has purchased redemption. It's that Jesus has purchased redemption for the whole of the world. For every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. That there is no people on the earth for whom Jesus is not to be their savior. Jesus is the universal savior of all mankind. He is the only one that we can look to for salvation. And so this command to sing is given by the psalmist to all the earth. We might translate it to every land that exists. There is a universality to this song. It is for everyone. No one is left out. Now that makes sense. Because there's only one God. The psalmist will make that clearer to us in just a moment. And so therefore... We are entitled, no, we are commanded to bring this song to everyone. Now this is very important in our day and age because so much of our world around us tells us that we cannot impose our ideas on others. That we're allowed to have truth for ourselves, but we can't say it's truth for others. Now the Bible knows nothing of this way of thinking. The Bible teaches us that there is one truth, that there is one God, that there is one hope, that there is one salvation, that there is one song. It is for everyone. We are not to withhold it from anyone. The psalmist then makes explicit what the content of this song is. It is God's salvation. Now we are singing to the Lord, but the content of our song is about the Lord. Why would that be? After all, God already knows himself. Now the reason why we sing to the Lord a song about what he has done is that when others hear our song, they learn about the Lord. And the most important and primary thing in our song 
is God's salvation. Verse 2 is interesting in how it puts it. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Now, the verb tell here is about more than just speaking. It has at its root the idea of announcing something. It is something that a herald would do. Now, you all know what a herald is, don't you, kids? A herald is someone who in medieval times would dress up in a fancy costume and would blow a trumpet about four feet long and announce the news of the king. The herald is the one who gets everyone's attention and announces the good news. And so, what is announced here? It's God's salvation. Tell of his salvation, the psalmist tells us. Now, this is a very familiar Hebrew word for you. Because the Hebrew word for salvation is a word you would recognize because it is related to the name Joshua. Perhaps you know it better in its Greek form. Jesus. The name Joshua, the name Jesus means the Lord saves. And so when we announce God's salvation to a world, we are announcing Jesus. Jesus is the Savior of the world, and we announce and herald Jesus Christ as the Savior of all. Now there's two other aspects to this verse that help us to see the command to tell others of God's salvation. That this is something we must be involved in. First is the phrase, from day to day, that occurs at the end of verse 2. And this phrase occurs in one other place in the Bible. It occurs in Psalm 19. And it occurs describing how creation itself testifies to God. That the sun and the moon, the forest and the plains, all of creation testify to the Lord. And they testify, the psalmist says, day to day. Now, what does that mean? Well, when you got up this morning, I would imagine you did not wonder whether the sun would show in the sky. You didn't wonder whether you would see clouds or not. Or when you go to bed tonight, if there will be the moon. We just take all of these things for creation for granted. Why? Because they speak that same message day after day after day. There is never a day, there is never a place that does not speak, the psalmist says in Psalm 19, of the glory of God. Now I want you to take that thought and apply it to our speaking of the salvation of our God, the singing of our song. We are called to do this day to day. What that means is there should not be a day that goes by that you do not testify to the salvation of God. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to spend every waking moment of your day reciting verses from the book of Romans to others. But what it does mean is everything about you, your speech, your actions, your relationships, the way you deal with others should testify that you have been redeemed from sin and you are thankful to the Lord and you are a new creation in Christ. Everything about you should sing out the salvation of the Lord. The second thing that helps us to see what is going on here and the command that comes to us is the, word, is the verb tell. Now, you've heard me say that it does have a connotation of announcing news. 
Well, one thing that is often helpful for us as we read the Hebrew Old Testament is to look at the Greek translation that was made of the Old Testament. Not because it's inspired any more than our English translations are inspired, but in Jesus' day there were a good many Jews that could not read Hebrew. And so it had been translated from Hebrew into Greek, which they could read so they could understand the Scriptures. Now this is helpful for us because we can then directly compare words in the Old Testament to words in the New Testament, which is also written in Greek. And all of this comes to this point. This verb tell is translated in Greek, and you know it well. It is the word to evangelize, to spread the good news. When the New Testament speaks of preaching the gospel, this is the verb it uses. When the New Testament speaks of preaching the good news, this is the verb it uses. You see, we are to tell this story of who God is and what He has done to announce the good news. That's what we're to do. The psalmist then tells us to tell the world that the Lord is Lord over all. Now, this is important because God is not some kind of localized deity. It's not as if some people can have God, other people can have Allah, and still yet other people can have Hindu deities. No. We are to declare God and what He has done among all the nations, the psalmist says, and all the peoples. Now notice that this is intentionally plural, peoples. It's actually a little bit odd for our ears, isn't it? We don't normally use the word peoples. When we say, there were so many people at that event, we don't say there were so many Peoples, they look at us odd. But you see, the psalmist here is intentionally using the plural because he doesn't just mean one group of a lot of people. He means a whole bunch of groups of a lot of people. As a matter of fact, all the groups of all the people. All the peoples on earth. The nations. The Gentiles. This is the idea that we get and we cannot keep silent. We are to declare this, to declare His glory among the nations. This is a public act. We are to announce to all what God has done. But it is more than a brief shout. I fear that sometimes when we think about evangelism, our thoughts run in this direction. I have to find the perfect opportunity to share the gospel with someone. And before I do that, I have to have a whole bunch of verses memorized. And the timing has to be just right. And it would be really nice if there was some kind of visible sign from God that I was supposed to speak to this person, like a lightning bolt or something like that. That would help me because this is some kind of big event. i got to work myself up to it and then get it out. But you see, that's not what the psalmist says we're to do. When we sing the song of the Lord and what He has done, we are to declare His glory among the nations. And this declaring is not a one-time shout. It's actually more like the actions of a reporter. Someone who reports day to day, continually, on the facts and what is happening. It's an accounting of what God has done. Even making a written account of God's actions. 
Is this what you think about when you talk to others about God? You see, the temptation is for us often to be vague and general about God. Because nobody's really offended by that. I don't know of anyone who has ever been offended by the idea or the speaking of a higher power. No. The more vague and general we can be, the less offensive we are. But we're not called to that, the psalmist says. We are called to tell the whole world about the glory of God and what God has done. We recount his deeds. That means we must be familiar with what he has done. And the place where we find out what God has done is in the scriptures. We have to go to the Bible to know what God has done so we can declare it to the world. And when we see that, we see that God has done works that no other could do. Verse 3 says, Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. These marvelous works are His wonders, His extraordinary things that He has done. Even those things that seem impossible, that we are to declare. Now we might say, that Jesus was following this command when he told his disciples that nothing is impossible with God. Our message is that none can compete with God. The other so-called gods are not to be feared. That is, they are not to be revered. This word feared in verse 4 has behind it the idea of awesome or awful. That is, our mouths are stopped by the wonder and the majesty of what we have seen God do. We are filled with awe. The other so-called gods are nothing. The psalmist says they are worthless. There is a, a play on words that's happening here to draw our attention. In Hebrew, the word for worthless idols and the word for God are the same except for one vowel. And what this teaches us is that no matter how closely we attempt to copy God in our life, no matter how close we think we have come, what we have created is worthless and nothing. Everything that competes with our loyalty for God, money, fame, education, philosophy, anything, is nothing. Only God is worthy of our worship. And God has indeed done works that show us who He is. And the psalmist shows us that what the Lord has done declares His greatness. While the so-called gods are worthless, the Lord, the psalmist says, made the heavens. This is a direct reference to Genesis 1. 1. The world wants to tell us that we don't need God. Because God didn't create the world. They want to tell us that the world came out of nothing. Somehow, some way. They can't describe it because there is no instance of something coming from nothing in the history of all of the universe. But somehow, somehow just by speaking about huge amounts of time, they want this to come to be a reality. But the real reality is that God has made all things and all the beauty all the precision, all the order of creation 
speaks volumes about his authority, his power, his strength, his beauty. We declare the great works of God because they declare him to the world. We declare God's works, but you can see that his works flow out of his nature. That is, God does things because of who he is. He is not defined by his actions. His actions come out of his nature. Now, we can be confused by this because often we find our meaning and our true selves in what we do. Let me ask you this. When you meet a person for the first time, what is the first question you ask them? Oftentimes, it is something like this. What do you do for a living? We want to gauge who they are to get an idea of who they are by what they do or what they've done. Now, with God, we must be looking for who He is first, not what He's done. Because, you see, God is who He is and He doesn't change. If you were to ask me what I do, your assessment of me would change over the course of my life. Because I've been an academic, I've been an attorney, and now I'm a pastor. So who am I? Depends on when you ask. For many of you, you have the exact same experience. But God is never changing. And the psalmist takes this up in verses 7 through 9. He describes the Lord as being glorious and holy. Let's look first at the glorious God. Now again here in verses 7 through 8, we have this triple command, just like we had in verses 1 through 2. There it was we were called to sing. Here we are told to ascribe to the Lord. Now what does that mean? I'm going to take a stab in the dark here and say that not many of you use the word ascribe in your daily language. What it means here is, the first thing we must understand is that this psalm is describing worship. It is commanding us to make declarations about God and what He has done in the context of worship, the gathering together of God's people to declare to the world. Now, what tells us something about worship? Worship is not about what we can get out of it. So much of modern church battles about worship are because we focus on ourselves. The emphasis is on what worship does for me. How does it make me feel? Am I enjoying it? Am I benefited by it? That's how we assess worship. But the psalmist says that worship has at its core not what we get, but what we give. That's what the word ascribe means. It means to come and give, to give to God in worship. To bring to God. We come to God to acknowledge who He is and what He has done. Now I want to ask you, did you think about that last night? Did you think about that this morning? That you were coming to worship God, to serve God. To declare His greatness to a watching world. Because you see, that is what worship is about. It is about God, not us. So what do we then ascribe to God? What do we bring to Him? 
the psalmist tells us that we bring glory and strength. That is, we declare that God is glorious. And when we speak of God's glory, this has the idea of being weighty or important. Something that shows the difference between one thing and another thing. And that is how we describe the Lord to ourselves and to others. He is unlike us. He is greater than us. He is worthy of praise, not just because of what he has done. He is worthy of praise because of who he is. The psalmist continues to remind us of this great difference between us and God in verse 8. It tells us that when we bring to God, we bring to God glory that he is due. Because you see, the greatest barrier between us and redemption is the belief that we are on the same order as God. That God has to answer to us. That God has to fit our standards. But the psalmist says, no. He says, God is completely unlike us. He is glorious and he is worthy. We are not. To even come into his presence means to acknowledge that. We bring him the glory, not that we think is sufficient, or not that we desire to bring to him. We bring to him the glory that is due his name. God is worthy in himself. And what is it that makes God so different from us? What makes him so glorious? The psalmist answers that question in verse 9. He says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The psalmist tells us that God is glorious because he is holy. Now at its root, holiness means otherness. Something holy is something that is set apart. And that is because God is completely set apart from all of creation. Now one of the most foolish beliefs in all of the history of mankind is that creation itself is God. That is, that we are all a part of God. That there is no distinction between the creator and the creature. And the Bible emphatically declares that this is not true. It does so from the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1-1, when it declares, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is separate from us. He is different from us. And that is glorious good news. The God we worship is not some kind of super powerful man who has all the same problems we do. Can you think of the Greek gods who have more might than the average man, but all of the sins, all of the emotions, all of the problems that mankind has? God is not like us in that way. He is perfect in all his ways. He is beautiful in all his being. There is no one like him. This is also a part of what we must declare to the world. Then in the final verses, verses 10 through 13, the psalmist declares for us the return of the Lord. First he emphasizes the return of the Lord as judge. He says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. 
And again at the end of verse 13, He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Now, this may not be what we expect. How is this good news? How can we declare to the world that God will be the judge and expect them to listen eagerly? The way we do this is the psalmist reminds us in verse 10 that the reason the Lord is judge is because He reigns. And actually, the whole world already knows this. The Bible tells us you don't need to convince someone that God reigns because they already know it. They just suppress that truth in unrighteousness, Paul tells us in Romans 1. And the reason this is, is the alternative is unthinkable. Do you know anyone who lives in a world and views it as being completely out of control, with no order, with no justice, with no rule at all? Can you imagine a worse place to live? Well, we've seen what it looks like in the history of mankind. It's where people cast off God and cast off His rule. We've seen it in Nazi Germany. We've seen it in Soviet Russia. We've seen it in Mao's China. We've seen it in Rwanda. We see it everywhere where the creation of God, man, created in His image, is denied. Where God's due as Creator is denied. But we as followers of Jesus Christ can declare the truth. The truth is that God reigns. That even in the midst of a sin-tossed world, He reigns. And it is true that His reign can be difficult to see at times. Because after all, there is... So much unrighteousness, so much sin in the world today. But the very fact that that bothers us, the very fact that we see unrighteousness and sin as wrong, points to God. It points to His rule. We wish it to be done away with. We know it's not right. We know that the world is broken. Now I will tell you this as you share with others. So does every unbeliever around you. They know that the world is broken. And this is something that we must declare to them. They are right to be outraged at the sin and brokenness in the world. But that doesn't stop the fact that God reigns. There is hope in the midst of our sin because God reigns. Why is there hope? How can the world be established in all of this chaos like the psalmist says? The world is established. It shall never be moved. That is because God is coming back. He is coming back as judge. Right now, His judgment is waiting as He shows His mercy in Jesus Christ. But He is coming. He will judge with equity. He will judge with uprightness. He will not be bribed. He will not forget he will not be unjust. All things will be put right by God. Isn't that what everyone wants on some level? To have justice and a brightness? We can declare that that day is coming. That God in His great justice will set all things 
right. But God is coming back not just to right all wrongs, but also to restore all things. Do you see the description of the world in verses 11 and 12? Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar, let the field exalt, then the trees of the forest shall sing for joy. This is what we are to declare to a watching world. That when the Lord returns, creation itself will shout for joy. All things will be made new. They will not be subject to destruction anymore. There will be no more death. The seas will rejoice and the lands will break out in song. The trees and the rocks will cry out praising their creator. And the pinnacle of all creation, man, made in the image of God, will also rejoice. All will be made right. Nature will never roar with death again. And God's people will know their true purpose and meaning. They will see their Lord return and set all things right. The psalmist has given you a song to sing. He doesn't ask whether you can carry a tune. He doesn't ask whether you want to sing or enjoy singing. He tells you, That as a child of God, as one who has been redeemed, who goes down to the wells of salvation, that your song should break forth. You should be unable to stop it. I fear far too often in the church in our day and age, we don't think we can start singing God's praises. The biblical view is, you can't be stopped. Are you ready to sing before a watching world that needs Jesus? Are you ready to tell of the glorious works that the Lord has done? Are you ready to tell the world of the glory and the holiness of God? Because you see, that is what we have been called to, brethren. To proclaim the salvation of our God.